Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we are learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares a teaching from Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, titled Ritual. We have been teaching our way through a series called Presence. We've been talking about the presence of God. And so far, we've talked about a few things. We've talked about being curious. Oh, by the way, I have the worst handwriting in the world, so I apologize if you can't read it, but I'll tell you what these words say. That says curious, believe it or not. We talked about the importance of cultivating a sense of curiosity in order to experience a sense of the presence of God. We also talked about devotion, the importance of being, once you are you have developed a kind of curiosity about whether or not there might be a God or if there is that sort of God, what are the possibilities for that in my life or, or for our lives together? And so we tend to enter into a kind of single-minded focus, devotion is another word for that, for learning what it might mean if there's a God. So we talked about curiosity. We talked about devotion. What else did we talk about? Oh, we talked about change. We said that once we are devoted to exploring a sense of the presence of God in our lives, that tends to produce change in us, and then that tends to lead us to relationships, right? And that those relationships tend to be relationships of love, and that love tends to embody itself in a few ways, namely solidarity. Yes, that says solidarity, I promise, right? And then lament. And then celebration. That's everything we've talked about so far. If you notice, there's a kind of continuum there from an individual experience to a kind of corporate or group experience. So we start by being curious about whether or not there is a God and how we might interact with this God. And if all goes according to my plan, we all end up celebrating in solidarity with each other and lamenting with each other and experiencing the presence of God together as a corporate group. Today I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different. So this isn't really going to be a preaching. I'm not going to teach the way that I normally do. I'm going to ask you to start out by reflecting on what we did together today in communion. So I read through a particular passage we shared the cup, we shared the bread, we walked together, we prayed together. I'm going to ask you to do something that uh, you shouldn't do in church, by the way, but a lot of small churches do things like this, and it's exactly the sort of thing that makes sure that small churches don't become big churches, <laughs> which is probably a reason to do it. Uh, I'm going to ask you to talk to each other for a couple of minutes about what you experienced. And I want to uh, preface that by saying this. It doesn't matter what you did or didn't experience. There's no wrong answer to this question. Okay, so, but I am going to ask you, which of these eight things during our time of communion together, which of these would you say you experienced most? So maybe for some of you, uh, today's communion together caused you to rethink something in your life, and you experience some change, change of perspective, change of opinion, change of attitude. Uh, maybe you experienced a sense of love, a sense of acceptance for the first time. Maybe you experienced boredom. That's not on the list. 
But it would be normal and even, I would say, healthy to experience boredom during a ritual that you do over and over and over again. Or doing something that just doesn't, for whatever reason, have a lot of meaning to you. Maybe you just experienced nothing. That's OK, too. But I suspect some of you experienced one or more of these things on the list, curiosity, devotion, change, a sense of being in relationship, a sense of love, a sense of solidarity, maybe a sense of lament, a sense of sadness, or celebration. And I want to ask you to take about three minutes and get into groups of no less than three, right? I want you to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to be included. And I want to ask you to share which of these you feel like you experienced most. Now, if you don't want to participate in this, that's OK. So repeat after me. I'm just going to pass this time. Very good. All right. It really is OK to do that, OK? So this is not where, like, you know, all of the introverts in the room suddenly have to <laughs> pretend to be extroverts. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm an introvert, so I get that. But I want to ask you if you are that person to maybe at least listen in, right? So go. <laughs> OK, so. Now comes the other scary part. I am going to ask you to share, or I'm going to ask two or three of you to share. And what I'm going to ask you to share is not what you shared with somebody else. I want to ask you to share what you heard. And in particular, those of you who heard something that was very uh, inspiring or touching or moving for you. So you heard somebody else share what they experienced, and that was very moving for you. So just to clarify, to reiterate, for those of you whose minds are wandering already, do not share your own thing, right? Share somebody else's. Now, because you're sharing somebody else's thing, please be emotionally intelligent. If you heard somebody share something that was really vulnerable, maybe don't share that, OK? So, you know, you were touched and inspired. Now's the time to ask, would this person be OK with me sharing this with everybody else in the room? Uh, so does that make sense? OK, so I'd love to hear from two or three of you. What did you hear that was really moving or helpful or inspiring to you? Gary. Good, very good. All right, so somebody shared about experiencing love and then within the context of this congregation, which is really good to hear. Yeah. Of 
Okay, which sounds a lot like this, of course, this is what I'm thinking about today, but it sounds a little bit like a journey, right? So there is this sort of walking through uh, your life, coming here, uh, reintegrating in some way, and then taking that with you. Okay, very good. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? What'd you hear that was helpful or inspiring? <coughs> yes, Terry. And that was moving for you. Yeah, I just think that's amazing, right? That, that you could be, like one person could be going through something really trying, something difficult, whatever that might be, right? We all go through difficult, trying things, and sometimes, you know, what seems small to other people is really large to us, and vice versa, right? So, but it's incredible to me that you can come to a place where people gather, they accept each other, they listen to each other, and then what somebody else is going through can really transform you. Uh, to me, that's like some kind of a miracle, actually. Um, maybe it's because I spend too much time on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> but it's easy to believe that that kind of redemptive, transformative human connection is just not possible anymore, right? Okay, good. Uh, what we did, of course, was a kind of ritual. And that's what we're talking about today is uh, the last topic in our series on the presence of God is ritual, which might sound a little bit odd because when we're talking about experiencing or encountering the presence of God, typically in church, the way that looks, I think, is like a lot of people like, you know, vigorously celebrating or experiencing joy or being very demonstrative uh, in a kind of enthusiastic and especially spontaneous way. And when we think about ritual, we tend to think about the opposite of all of that. Ritual is something that we do that's sort of very rote. It's sort of repetitive. By definition, it's repetitive. It tends to be sort of uninspiring and feel uninspired. In fact, we are a culture of people who, by and large, uh, believes that ritual doesn't have a place in our lives anymore. But of course, we all engage in rituals every single day. Every culture uses ritual to make meaning out of their lives, including going on Facebook eight times a day and liking, 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 hearting, and then wishing that there was like, you know, a thumbs down thing, right? So we all have, we all have rituals in our lives. And we all go through periods of time where we reject a particular ritual and then begin to build new ones. That's only natural. When we come to the Lord's table, I mentioned this already, we are entering into a very, very old ritual. I want to read a little bit of this passage to you. I'm going to go ahead and put a portion of it up on the screen. Um, but I'm actually going to start a little bit earlier than this. Uh, so just maybe follow along as I read uh, with your ears, and then we're going to end up on verses 19 and 20. Starting in verse 14, Luke chapter 22 says this, When the hour came, Jesus and the apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom 
of God. It was a tradition. It was part of the ritual to celebrate the Passover Seder around a kind of horseshoe-shaped table that was very low, so you would sit on pillows and kind of recline to one side. If you have friends who are Jewish or if you are Jewish and you've experienced the Seder before, uh, very often we still will recline. Uh, I say we because I've experienced Seders with friends who are Jewish, not because I'm Jewish. So I don't want to claim that, sorry. Um, But as we sort of gather around that Seder table, oftentimes we still will recline to reflect that tradition of being seated in that sort of posture. Verse 17 says this, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's something about the Seder for Christ as a Jewish person, as a rabbi. There's something about this this ritual that doesn't just speak to the past, it speaks to the future which I think is something that we often forget when we engage in rituals in church. Uh, Ritual becomes entirely about the remembrance of something that has happened in the past, a reenactment of something that has happened in the past, and that's part of what ritual is. But for Christ, at least, this particular ritual also became forward-looking. And of course, that's always been true of the Seder. The Seder has always been rooted in a memory of what God has done redemptively for God's people, but then looking forward to the promise of the covenant to come. And so Christ really stands firmly in that tradition when he uses these words about the kingdom coming. Verse 19, and this is where we pick it up here on the screen. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is the part that is not in a typical Jewish Seder. As you can imagine, Christ did something very different when he took that Seder supper and he took that matzah and he said, this is my body. So what Christ really did here is take a a long-standing ritual and reinvent it. Now, our lives, I don't know if you've noticed this, and some of what you all shared is a good example of this, but um, maybe you can identify with this. Our lives sort of truck along, right? Day in, day out. We do our thing. We go to work. We kiss our kids. We kiss our spouse. We say goodbye. Or if we're not married, we get ready for work. We get ready for school. And off we go. We experience our day. And then there are times in life when instead of sort of trucking along, it starts to look like this. Right? Have you noticed that? Right? You go around and, you know, everything gets sort of chaotic and jumbled and crazy and insane. And sometimes we're like, what the heck is happening here? I don't know. And then after a while, somehow we sort of come out of that. Does that describe any period of your life at any time? Maybe it describes part of your life now. Maybe that's what it looks like for you today. This also, by the way, is exactly what uh, the Hebrew slaves were doing in the wilderness. Their lives were moving along, and then they were promised deliverance and freedom and liberation from Egypt, and of course, they received that and went into a wilderness and literally wandered in circles for 40 years, the tradition goes. So I don't know if you know this, maybe you've made this connection, maybe you haven't, maybe this is super obvious, maybe it's not, 
Um, but the genius of the Judeo-Christian tradition is that our lives are an exodus. That's what that story is about. That story is about the idea that we go along in our lives experiencing all kinds of things, good and bad, but then at certain points in our lives, they get thrown into utter chaos. And usually that chaos comes right after the promise of something better. This is an entirely predictable pattern, by the way. There are stages in our lives at every age where we can predict that you will enter into this kind of crisis. We famously talk about it during adolescence or we talk about it at midlife. But the truth is, is we all experience those moments of chaos and craziness and disorder and frustration or anger or grief or sorrow, whatever it might be. We experience that chaos very predictably at very different stages of our lives. And then, of course, in addition to those predictable stages, we also just circumstantially experience this. Somebody close to us passes away. We fall in love, we get married. If that doesn't throw your life into chaos, then I don't know. Do you have a pulse? We have children. Our children go through their own stages, and that tends to trigger our like, chaos and our transitions. And then our kids grow up, or like in, in my life right now, Janelle and I are experiencing the crazy, weird, chaotic vulnerability of all of our kids being out of the house, being empty, empty nesters. The weirdness of like staring at each other like a lot. (laughs) Does she still like me? (laughs) Is she getting annoyed? So so we experience this kind of chaos uh, all throughout our lives. Again, the genius of Judeo-Christian spirituality is the recognition that we are always on exodus. Always. We're always leaving one form of becoming and moving towards another. And in between, there is this crazy period. Now, this is exactly what ritual is for, by the way. A ritual is simply a set of practices that surround this period of chaos so that you can experience the chaos safely. And that's what every ritual and every culture really is. Uh, The period before the ritual is typically uh, called dislocation, right? The period after the ritual is sometimes called integration or reincorporation. This period right in here, this craziness that you're in, is called liminality. Now, maybe you've heard that word, liminality. Liminality literally just means it's crazy in here. It's chaotic. It's without form. You experience a loss of identity. In human development, we talk about it literally as a loss of identity. That's why it's called an identity crisis. Because you go from one stage of being to another, and in between, you don't know who you are, you don't know what you are, you don't know whose you are. Nowadays, in religion, uh, we often call that deconstruction. When everything you thought you knew before is being systematically taken apart by your circumstances, 
or by your doubts or because you are simply entering into new realms of understanding and that is screwing everything up for you. Now the beauty of a set of predictable practices like the Seder or like communion or like gathering together as a church is that just like the Israelites in the desert, this ritual becomes a kind of tent. It's a structure that you exist in that provides you with safe space to do all of that doubting and deconstructing and um, expressing of anger and sorrow and celebrating and lamenting and all that crazy stuff. It's where you get to do that. So what I would like to suggest to you is that when we come here and we do things like share communion together, when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, what he's doing is he's instituting a kind of construct of safety within which we can all wrestle with the change that God's presence causes in our lives. Because it doesn't always feel good. It's scary. And so the ritual is supposed to provide us with a safe space for doing that. These spaces then where these rituals take place, right? This is, by the way, supposed to look like stained glass. I don't know if it really does or not. Sometimes we call that in sort of religious language, we call that sacred space. Because when this works for us, it feels like a thin space where you're coming into awareness that God is there. Now, just, you know, to put your minds at ease theologically, for those of you who might be freaking out, God's here too, right? God's here too, and God's here, you know, and God's there, you know, and there and all over the place, but we're just not always aware of God. But there's something about being in a place of chaos and doubt and grief and deconstruction and frustration and anger and sorrow and change and disorientation that makes you hyper aware of the presence of something else. And so our job here is just to create safe spaces for that to happen. When I was in my early 20s, I uh, discovered fasting. And uh, it was really a wonderful uh, discovery of a kind of ritual that you could engage in in order to find a thin space in your life. I wasn't raised in any kind of tradition that embraced spiritual disciplines like fasting. And so when I discovered fasting through the work of Richard Foster, who's a Quaker, uh, who is a Quaker, he's still alive, shouldn't talk about him in the past tense. Uh, and he wrote a lot about spiritual disciplines in the 1970s, and then he got popular again in the 1990s, which is when I started paying attention and uh, I started practicing fasting, it became an incredibly important and rich experience for me. And we are, of course, in Lent now, so some of you might be fasting. If you're fasting, I would encourage it, but the purpose of fasting of any kind is essentially to intentionally enter into a space of liminality. Because it will throw your body into all kinds of chaos and craziness when you deny it food. <laughs> And of course, one of the first things you discover is that things like food tend to control you, you don't control it. 
And so fasting becomes a way of intentionally entering into this space. When I was uh, first starting to experiment with fasting, uh, I really enjoyed it, but I would do this really weird thing where when I was fasting for any length of time, like a week or up to 40 days, I had a friend, we would you know, fast for very long periods of time because we were stupid and in our 20s and didn't really think very you know, carefully about how we were doing that. But I, I would do this funny thing where I would give up food for a period of time, and then during that time when I wasn't eating, I really, really loved to cook for people. <laughs> so, we would, so we would invite people over for dinner, and I would cook these elaborate meals, and then I would serve them, and then I'd like watch them eat, you know? But it was so fun. Like I discovered the joy of serving other people's needs rather than serving my own. But the point, of course, is that that ritual, engaging in that ritual of fasting, became an important way for me to encounter a thin space where I could become more aware of how God's grace was always at work in my life when I was eating, when I was even abusing food. God was still at work in my life. The practice of fasting made me more aware of it. Now, there are a couple ways, by the way, that this can go horribly wrong. And if you've been around church or religion for any length of time, you can probably think of about eight ways that engaging in a ritual can go very, very wrong. Uh, I just want to point out two because they're salient to this church and what we do here. And so I hope that will be helpful to you. The first way that, that ritual can go very wrong is when we try to control what happens in here. What I mean by that, of course, is that we try to control you. And the funny thing about creating rituals or experiences of any kind is that you discover it's really easy to manipulate people. It's really easy to control them. And so if we're ever doing anything here that in any way tries to dictate to you what your period of liminality looks like, then we've crossed the line. Because, see, the whole point of liminality is that you and God get to figure out where you're going. I don't get to figure that out for you. I don't get to try to determine what it looks like when you come out of the other side of that. I don't get to decide that on the other side of that you are going to become, you know, a congregationalist or an Anglican or, you know, a process theologian or an atheist or an agnostic. I don't get to determine any of that. And lots of people go through that period of liminality. They come out on the other side and they have become something that maybe we're uncomfortable with. I still don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide that as a church. Our job is simply to use these practices to create a safe space for you to experience how God is changing and transforming you. That's it. Maybe you've been in a place where a church tried to control what your wandering looked like. I'm sorry if that's what you experienced. If we ever do that, I hope you'll just say so. Even if you say so while you leave, that's okay too. But I'd rather you just say so, so that we can stop trying to control you. Uh, the second way that this can go really, really badly is if this 
structure, the structure of practices, the structure of the ritual becomes the point. Now you know that the ritual, the practices, the church has become the point when you start sacrificing people to it. That's how you know that the practices have become God. And so for that reason, rituals have to change from time to time. We have to leave certain things behind in order to remind ourselves that this is not the point. We have a lot of pride in this place because you know it's been around for 145 years this year. And this is the new building, and it's you know been around since 1928. And we put a lot of effort into taking good care of this place, and we think it's beautiful, and it's really effective and fun. But you know this isn't the point, right? The point is creating space for you to meet God, however you meet God, so that you can work through your own wandering in the wilderness. That's the point. And as soon as this place becomes the point, we should just burn it down. I'm not kidding. That's sort of like the ex-evangelical in me speaking. Um, but it's not about this place. We could do this anywhere. And God does do it everywhere. So if we start sacrificing people to this place or the things that we do, please say so. And let's not make it about church. It's about the change. What I want to do is invite you into these practices with us as a church. Next week, we're going to debrief this series a little bit. Janelle's going to take the lead in that. Sometimes she does that. Next week, what we do here during this time is going to look even different than today. It's going to be much more like a dialogue. And I'm hoping that we'll hear from some of you about how you do or don't experience the presence of God and how that has maybe shifted over the years as you have grown in your faith or as you've redefined your faith. But ultimately, what we're doing here is inviting you into a space where you can experience that liminality, that wandering. And I think ritual is a part of that. So that's what we're inviting you into in this space. Does that make sense? All right. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today and for an opportunity for us to engage in uh, a space where we can be transformed, where the familiar practices of gathering and eating and drinking and greeting each other, serving each other's needs, singing, praying, wrestling with ideas about who you are and how you work in our life. We pray that this space would be an effective space for meeting you. Whatever that looks like and however the outcome turns out, we ask that you would change us 
so that we can become people who are of use to the goodness that you are trying to bring. We ask that we would get better at the practices that we're engaging in, not because we are earning our way into your presence, but just because intentionality does take effort. So help us to be more intentional, to put a little more effort into creating space for each other. And lastly, we just ask that you would make us more aware of how you are at work in every part of our lives. We thank you for this place, for the people who are here. In Jesus' name, amen.